Hey, welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, we have the man who leads EA's competitive gaming and esports division. Now, for anyone who's watched any of my content or knows about my history, I came up in the esports industry through Battlefield 2. Uh, the first game I ever purchased with my own money was FIFA 2000. So we had a great nostalgia trip at the start and then really went into how EA are doing esports differently to other people and how they want to help to innovate it for the future. And I'll just leave you with one thing to think of as we go into this episode. Think about The Sims as an eSport. It's an interesting discussion. I learned a lot and I came away quite impressed with a lot of the way that he thinks and answers the questions. So hopefully you enjoy this episode too. Enjoy. Todd, we're live. How are you, mate? I'm doing great. Fantastic. So I mean, the easiest way to kick off this podcast, I guess, as as with so many others, is just let us know, you know, give us a bit of an elevator pitch about yourself, your, your history in gaming and business um, and, you know, where you're sitting at today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been quite a journey. I uh, actually started my uh, my career as an engineer, um, and uh, and then immediately abandoned that. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, then I got on uh, sort of the track of uh, of marketing, um, and I was outside the gaming industry for several years. Uh, but then I think I've now been in the gaming industry for I think we're coming up on like twenty six years, so quite a long time. Um, did an internet startup along the way because we sort of had to do that. Um, but I came to EA in 2001. So I just uh, finished uh, 19 years of electronic arts. And uh, I've had a lot of roles since I've come to EA. Uh, I started out in based in Orlando, Florida, working on uh, the products, the sports products out of there, running their, their marketing team. Uh, and then that grew to me running uh, the uh, EA Sports brand and the marketing for EA Sports worldwide. Uh, mm-hmm. That eventually led to me um, leading marketing, the global marketing function at EA uh, for all of our franchises. And uh, and then about five years ago, uh, I was looking for something new, and uh, EA was was deciding about making an investment in uh, esports and. Uh, I said, that sounds pretty interesting. So um, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, almost five years now. Yeah, wow. It's funny. That, I mean, for any for anyone who follows the um, podcast and content that we do, they know that I, I kind of started my esports career as a top-level player in Battlefield 2. And um, no game to this day has, you know, given me as much, I guess, casual and, and competitive enjoyment as, as Battlefield 2. Man, that was a game that, you know, I guess it's a lot of people think, you know, back in my day, the games were better, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I, I love to tell this story when I was, you know, 17, 18 years old, I used to drive over to my mate's house, you know, at 4.30, um, you know, we'd, we'd purchase a 30 pack can of Coke and probably have half of those each throughout the night and, and play until, you know, from around 4.30 till around 7.30 a.m. The next day until like our, our eyes and our hands just couldn't function anymore, go to sleep, wake up at one o'clock and then kick it off again, you know, play till six and then drive home. Yeah, well, I used to do the same thing. Uh, huge gamer. Um, you know, when I was doing marketing outside of the uh, games business, I really enjoyed that type of, you know, business approach, but I didn't really enjoy the industry I was in. And I just one day looked at the stack of games that I had, you know, next to my television and what I was doing with all my free time. And I just said, you know, maybe I should just, try to find a job in the games business. And um, I literally cold called all the 
video game companies in the Bay Area till you know I found one that was willing to to give me an opportunity, and that's kind of how you you sometimes start. But yeah, I mean, for me, one of the reasons I came to EA is that for me, the game growing up was was really Madden. Um, North American born and uh, came from Oklahoma, which is a big uh, you know football um, you know rich state and uh that was just the game that we played and so when i got an opportunity in 2001 and they said hey you can uh be the head of marketing for madden i was like wow that's like a dream come true it's like full circle yeah. basically so um i left at that opportunity and um yeah 19 years later it's gone through a lot of different different ins and outs but i i've enjoyed really every sort of unique opportunity that i've that i've had it was pretty funny. You're opening a lot of memories in my memory bank right now. <laughs> the first game I ever paid my own money for was FIFA 2000. Yeah, so, well, so there you go. And I, you know, for me, it was NHL. I think it was ninety. It was the famous one, ninety three or ninety four. Um, yeah. You know, with the the one timer. Um, I mean, I played that thing to death. I mean, that was just what we all played. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it's a dream come true when you get the opportunity to actually um you know as you get to become an adult and you get an opportunity to actually help build games and you bring those to market and now you get to do esports and um it's you know pretty amazing but it feels like a dream sometimes i mean and this and this question is probably pretty obvious for you but i, I think it will help to lead in i mean what does a basic marketing strategy today look like compared to what it used to, you know, 19 years ago, obviously magazines pretty much non-existent yeah. TV commercials. Yeah. I mean, when I first started, um, you know, there was only a few levers, you know, marketing levers that you felt like you could pull, right. There mm. was essentially press magazines that would write things about you. And then there was print advertising. I remember doing, you know, advertising for magazines. Um, and then only on a few, titles because again the industry was so much smaller um you know only a few titles ever actually ever did television advertising and that was like a big deal to do television advertising um mm. so you know a lot of retail you know uh what's your signage going to be at the cash register and you know all those sorts of things and just over that time period obviously the complete move to digital um uh, as a means of communication but also as a delivery mechanism for the games uh just radically changed you know what a marketing organization does or has to do and it also moved very much you know back when i started um you know you made a game it it whatever it was when it was done is what you brought to market and it stayed that way forever um and you sort of you know would get it was more like a movie business where you would sort of mm -hmm. build up to a launch make the launch and then and then you'd move on to the next game now things everything is a live service it, you know you're constantly adding to the game you're constantly engaging and and you're having a relationship with your player base as opposed to what i would call more of a transactional relationship now it's really based on a on a real relationship and so um yeah it's it's night and day and and you know, in my various capacities at EA, I've, I've uh, been involved in a lot of that transformation. Um, uh, I haven't been in marketing now for five years, but uh, I know it's continued to evolve at a pretty rapid pace. Mm, there's, a, there's a lot of people in the LinkedIn chat talking about Battlefield 1942 and Battlefield 2 now. 
So <laughs> we've, well, we've I, spun the nostalgia wheel. I think, uh, yeah, I didn't get to start working on the Battlefield series till um, Battlefield 4, which had its uh, challenges in, in initial launch, but ended up being a big success. Uh, you know, I, the, the first-person shooters were were not my genre of choice, but, you know, I've worked on a lot of them since. I worked on Titanfall, the very first Titanfall. Uh, so a lot of really great games and obviously Apex now. So uh, yeah. a lot of really, really cool stuff. It's fun. And I feel like one of the other major marketing differences too, I guess, for you guys would be internal marketing with a platform like Origin. You know, so many of the developers have their own platform these days and you're not you're not relying on that external retail, like you said. And, I, you know, I've got a bit of history in there with computer components, you know, working for Thermaltake and Corsair. And it's, it's so different when you control your own marketing platform. It's good and bad. Yeah, and I think also, you know, there's a shift to subscription now where, mm-hmm. you know, you're having a completely completely different relationship there um it's not about uh hey buy this game or you know get involved in this game it's again it's that longer term relational uh relationships that you're establishing with people um over a long period of time and um you know the metrics that you do to to decide what's good and bad have all changed um like i said the delivery of the product all changed um yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm still, you know, in the industry. And one of the reasons I'm still at EA is because, you know, we have everything is continues to change that it's it's not, you know, you don't get bored. Right. I mean, I, I come to work every day and, you know, especially this year, which is a you know cra- craziest year probably ever, um, you know, it, you're you're constantly uh, breaking new ground. And I think that's what keeps it exciting. Uh, that's why I'm still doing it. If, if I was still doing the same job, I was, you know, or roughly the same job that I was doing when I joined, I would have left a long time ago. But, um, you know, uh, I've been afforded a lot of really unique opportunities. Mm. And it's it's really interesting to see so many games these days, especially esports heavy titles, go away from that seasonal release, right? It's no longer just the release before Christmas. Uh, you know, if you look at games like Dota 2, CSGO, League of Legends, you know, they're all coming up on 10 plus years release. And it, and it seems like Apex Legends and some other games are following that that similar suit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think those games, and I would even say even the sports games that, that obviously EA Sports is known for, um, you know, the model is moving to less kind of these big, you know, uh, introductions and then another introduction said that, like I said, live services is the is the term, you know, which just means the game is relevant for a long period of time, um, you know, much longer. We, you know, we, we, we've moved like, for instance, The Sims, you know, and hopefully we'll get to talk about that today. I mean, we, we, especially around your question about what, what can be an eSport, um, we turned The Sims into a competitive gaming title um, that game is, I think, uh, past its five-year mark. In fact, I know it's past its five-year mark, and it's as relevant as it's ever been. I think it now has about 40 million people that play that game. So um, mm. it, it's, a, it's a different business. Um, consumer taste change um, and, and just, you know, the way, they, the way we interact uh, with, with the, the player base is, is very, very different and changes all the time. Mm. And it, it follows a similar method to how so many companies in 
you know, who who create software, apps, development kind of, you know, focus on updating their products over time. Like I remember looking at at Valve with their Dota 2 release, saying they're no longer going to, you know, every six months to a year releasing a massive patch where there's, you know, seven pages of patch notes. They were going to a bi-weekly schedule where every two weeks, you know, they might tweak some items a little bit, maybe change a hero slightly. But then they're still, you know, every six months or so, and generally, you know, after the international and, and somewhere else in between, they're they're releasing something big you know, to keep people interested. But also it, it enables you to test and learn, right? Like it would suck if you spent, you know, I just think about, imagine the anxiety of releasing like a FIFA 2000 or releasing something on the Nintendo 64 where you just can't change anything at all. And you go, damn, I hope people are going to like this. Like we yeah. can do our studies and we can guess and we can do our focus groups. But man, if we release something that sucks, we've got a whole year of pain to come before we release something else again. Well, uh, I've been in that that role or that business many, many, many times. And yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking. Um, you know, but look, everything is, is, is all this makes it interesting. That's, you know, bottom line for me is, um, you know, I get excited about, um, breaking new ground and doing things different. Um, you know, that, and, and so as long as, you know, this industry is sort of made for that. If you, if you constantly do the same sort of things, um, and I don't think the, the consumers reward you very well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I guess, you know, going into that question that we wanted to talk about, about, you know, what what makes a game an eSport, I feel like in the past, you know, eSports titles became eSports by accident. You know, Counter-Strike 1.6, you know, Dota 2, you know, even Battlefield 2 when I played it, none of these games were developed at the start with eSports in mind, but they just happened to become that way due to having certain factors to do with the game. I'm interested in learning from you, like, is there a special formula that, that makes a game an eSport in your mind? Yeah, I, I would never use the term formula, which makes it seem like you can just sort of crank out entertainment and uh, entertainment is never uh, that easy. Um, yeah. You know, I think there's a few lenses to look at that question. Um, and the heart of it is, to some degree, is is what, um, beyond just the community thing, hey, we like to watch people play. Um, and many communities have done that and it's sort of built up you know the need for it i'd say super smash brothers is, is an example of that where the community basically just rallied around and here's a game that hasn't you know really been updated yeah. for a long time and yet the community still wants to do that um from a publisher point of view um i think you have to ask the question and why are you doing esports in the first place and i think there are two reasons i can tell you why ea is doing them um, uh, the first is it is a marketing vehicle for the video games, right? Mm. People see people playing the game. They get to know the game. They get excited about it. It drives them to maybe purchase the game or drives them back to engage in the game. And that's, you know, that is the reason why esports was created. And that is actually the reason that the vast majority of the esports industry is based on that. And that's how they measure their success. So the question is, is can you build a big enough audience and can you engage, you know, a um, the viewer to become a player or as it is the case in most cases, we're taking we're not really trying to necessarily grow the player base. We're just trying to get them more engaged in our games. And so free to play games that, you know, have a revenue stream that come from people playing the game more and more. That's where the birth of esports all came from. 
Um, and they're still, they're still like that. Dota 2, I think, is built completely on that model. Um, yeah. But there's a different uh, reason also to do it, which I think there are a few of us that are publicly saying this is what we want to do as well, which is to create a media business based upon viewership. And that mm -hmm. means treating the esports as a entertainment property unto itself that you can make money from through media rights, sponsorship, merchandising, et cetera. And um, I think that's a much smaller group of companies, publishers that are trying to do that. Um, and so when it comes back to your question, which is what's an eSport, I think it kind of gets answered based upon, well, what's your objective or what's your goal? You know, for us, we look at it and say, okay, well, look, at the bare minimum, you need a game that, you know, is competitive in nature, right? And it has to be, honestly, legally, it has to be competitive in nature, right? So you have to pass certain governmental rules around what, what you know, what is, uh, you know, what what is an actual game, competitive game. So that's at like the bare minimum. But, you know, clearly we look at things like how engaged is the community, right? Are you gonna start from zero? Very few examples of where games have started from zero to create esports. Normally, the game was already at a certain level of popularity beforehand. So, you know, yeah. when I started the competitive gaming group, the first two games that I went behind was FIFA and Madden. Why? FIFA is the biggest, one of the biggest games in the world, certainly the biggest game that EA has. And Madden is the biggest game, you know, one of the biggest games in North America, and certainly the biggest game that we have in North America, uh, you know, on the sports side. And so that was just really based on, yes, they're competitive. Yes, they have engaged communities and they're, they're quite big. Um, so, you know, to me, that's the starting point. Um, you know, I'd say other things that are really important is that developing a game for play by millions of people is actually very different than developing a game that is made for viewership. And it requires a lot of changes that have to be made. And so one of the key attributes for me is you better have a dev team that actually wants this to be a success. So you, you know, it's really rare. In fact, I don't think there's any real example of any really large eSport game where literally it's just taking it off the shelf and playing it off the shelf. You need, in the same way that people are developing live service features inside of the games for the tens of million. We need the same thing out of our games, you know, uh, for, for our usage. And, you know, we have, everybody has limited resources, development resources, marketing resources, et cetera. So you better make sure you have a, uh, a partner, uh, internal partner I'm talking about, who really wants to realize a vision of, of, of creating a new form of entertainment based upon their game. Um, and, you know, we've had some, you know, uh, stop and starts as, you know, you go through that internally. But now we've, you know, we are, I think we have more games uh, uh, for a single publisher that has real heavy esport uh, support behind it than I believe any other publisher. We're now doing five franchises. So FIFA, uh, Madden uh, in Asia. We have a FIFA online for uh, uh, free-to-play game. 
uh, Apex Legends, and now just a month ago, uh, The Sims. And I think that's a pretty radical <laughs> lineup for what I would say is traditional esports. Um, and I think that's again part of our strategy. Uh, you know, Chris, is that if you look at the history of esports, esports have been around since uh, 1999, so 21 years. Started in Korea. Um, I would say that pretty much um, almost all of the executions around esports have played out of the same playbook. Let's uh, mimic a traditional sports broadcast. We're going to have a play-by-play -play person. We're going to have color analysts. We're going to have sideline reporters. We're going to take teams. We'll interview them before. We'll let them play. We'll interview them afterwards. We'll put up stats. That's just the traditional sports broadcast. Um, yeah. It's been primarily delivered through digital channels. Um, they're pretty lengthy broadcast, six hours, eight hours, multiple days. They've been completely male-dominated, um, both by the player base and by the viewer base. And I think also importantly, they are predominantly, almost exclusively watched by people who play the games that they're watching. Um, yeah, yeah. That is a big business, but it is not a mainstream business. It actually yeah. is a niche business. Um, what EA wanted to do is see if we could take the concept of competition around video games and move it to a mass market audience. Could we do things? Yeah, we'll do the traditional sports broadcast. That's what we've been doing for four years. But The Sims Spark is actually based on reality competition. Um, it's it's amazing that nobody, I mean, we over the last year as we were planning all that, we were like, man, I can't believe no one's ever done this. We got to get this to market before you know other people try to do this type of stuff. Um, you know, everything has been male dominated. Again, Sims Spark is a great example of that. Um, but we're also looking at, you know, if you look at behavior of Gen Z audiences, you know, they want shorter broadcast lanes. They don't want longer ones. So, you know, how do you create a form of entertainment that's actually going to hit an untapped audience, the player base audience? You know, you're capped. You're capped by how many people play your game. Yeah. But, you know, the best, you know, things that really go mass, um, you don't have to be a player to actually be a viewer. And that's kind of where we want to get to. And that's where we've been driving uh, towards. And, and over this last year, I think we just accelerated in sort of hitting that vision. Mm. A lot of, a lot of good nuggets. I had to take some notes uh, for some of the, some of the follow-ons responses from that. Some really, I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad you said a few of those things in there. Um, number one that I really wanted to highlight that you said that esports is often a loss leader and it's a, it's a marketing in itself. And I think that's something that, a lot of people endemic to the esports market don't understand. And I, I like to tell this story where, you know, I, I left my job at Corsair and say, I'm, I'm going to be an esports consultant and I'm going to convince people who don't know who I am to buy into an industry they don't understand, which globally is only worth $1.1 billion anyway. And without thinking that really it's gaming that drives esports and often esports is a loss leader and a marketing vehicle, you know, to push people into the casual game, just like you said. And using a user case, I mean, for me, it's Dota 2. You know, I've got, three, four, five thousand hours of Dota 2 over the past seven years. And I didn't want to play the game at the start because the entry level, the entry level for skill is extremely high in Dota 2, which is something they're trying to fix. And it was too hard. But I watched the International 2013 
you know, it was a fantastic tournament. I was like, wow, I want to be part of this ecosystem. And I've been playing the game since then. But even for me as someone who works in esports, I don't really embed myself at all in the esports ecosystem unless it's the international every year. But I do play the game with friends all the time. And, you know, I think another, you know, another thing you were saying as well is you don't, you don't or you shouldn't develop a game with esports in mind. And I'm sure you get messages like this all the time, and I do too. People say like, hey, Chris, I want to make an esports game. And they go, no, you want to make a game that has a low entry, a high skill ceiling, and it's good for content creators and it's good for casual people. Because, yeah. you know, once again, esports being a $1.1 billion market, gaming be a $163 billion market, like which one do you think you're going to make the money out of? Like I think it's going and, to be the and, game. And also just it, it is so hard to make a form of entertainment truly popular. And, you know, think about the number of games that are released each year and how many of them truly really get to large scale. And obviously, mm -hmm. EA is a company that deals with large scale. That's what we're trying to do. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really, really hard. So when I sat down and said, what should we build our esports program around? I'm going to try to put as many things to give me tailwind in this endeavor as possible. So, of course, I'm going to start with the biggest games that we have. Another reason I, this is a question that I get asked a lot, which is, well, if you could watch, you know, regular sports, why would you watch esports based upon a traditional sport like a FIFA or a Madden? You're right. There, there are trade-offs there. But what I will say is an answer I always give for that, two, two, two points. One is the reason people watch competition of any nature is not really about the actual skill that the person or team is is demonstrating. That's a part of it, but it's I'd say it's not the biggest part of it. The biggest part of it is an emotional attachment that people have to the competitors themselves or the teams, right? Why is college football in America so popular? Well, it's because people like literally generations passed down their love of, I grew up in Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma football, same thing with European football, club football, same sort of dynamic. Um, mm. and, and the same thing as it comes to, you know, when there's a storyline that's interesting, a team going for a championship, a team avoiding, you know, being uh, relegated, somebody going for a record, uh, two clubs that have a rivalry that don't like each other. That's really the motivation for watching. And so that's why you can see, like, whether it be things like um, the great British baking show or whether it be American Idol or Survivor, those are all competitions. I don't think people watch it for baking or for singing. They watch it for the drama. So for me, mm. our role, and I think this is true of any form of entertainment, is got to be entertaining. So um, if you are, I think people will watch regardless of whether they're actually going to play or not. And again, for a North American audience, I, I'd say look at the Super Bowl, you know, NFL Super Bowl. Um, what percentage of the people that watch the Super Bowl have ever put on uh, pads and played tackle football? Like 1%, 2%, something like that. So how do you get there? So part of it, I think, is focusing in on the stories the people, it, it's going to start with the core because the core is going to be most interested in the game. But to really get it to a bigger level, you're going to have to, you know, sort of tug at the heart, not just at sort of the intellect and, 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 the, and the brain portion of it. 
The other mm-hmm. thing I say about traditional sports games um, is that, again, I always think of things as, is the business I'm entering into a headwind or a tailwind? And some of the tailwinds that I get is, well, I get FIFA as an organization. I get the English Premier League. I get the NFL. I get the New England Patriots. These are huge organizations that have huge fans that have huge affinity. And by utilizing their their brands and their partnership, we actually can push things further along. And so when I look at a game, you know, you know, whatever it is, Call of Duty, Overwatch, Riot, those are predominantly just the publisher. Um, There are other players, but the predominant push is having to be funded and driven by the publisher. Um, What I, you know, like about our sports titles in particular is I got a lot of other really, really valuable and important partners that can push along uh, because that's really what it takes. I mean, if you're trying to really make a sustainable business as opposed to just a marketing or for a fun thing, which is where the industry started, then you're going to need as many uh, people with uh, uh, with aligned interests pushing all in the same direction. Mm. There's some interesting chat for you as well about the, the headwind tailwind. Are you you're a fan of aviation or is that just a... A statement that you use. I don't know. I'm a I'm kind of a metaphor person, so uh, <laughs> I always think of things in sort of those sorts of terms. Yeah, I mean, um, look, every, every business has head, headwinds and tailwinds, and obviously, yeah. you try to get as many things behind your sales as you possibly can. Yeah, that's true. You know, so so much of what you're talking about has been um, kind of affirming or or going along the same lines with a lot of my research. So I'm like, I'm a fairly recent fan of the UFC. And MMA as a whole. I do a bit of jiu-jitsu myself. Obviously, can't at the moment. It's a hundred percent contact sport, and we're in coronavirus, so it's the worst time to be uh, wanting to learn jiu-jitsu than anything else. But you know, I, I think that esports and gaming can learn so many things from the way that UFC does it, which is about focusing on the journeys of the of the fighters. Let's say you know there's a big fight on this weekend, and there's multiple episodes of UFC embedded where they will go to the the top fighters and they will follow them throughout the whole week, asking them how their training camp's going, asking them how their diet's going, um, how are they feeling mentally, how are, they de- how are they doing with media and the fans and their weight cut. You don't see that in esports. As well as, I think, the culmination of telling the story up to one big event and then they move on to the next, I think, is important too. Because I think you can lose the story. If you're doing a a 16 week regular play with with 8 to 8 to 30 plus teams you can kind of forget the story of of what people are going through in the day to day but when they're going up to that single fight you know you you're following that journey to like a big crescendo at the end and the yeah. other thing you were saying too about the limited amount of time you know a UFC fight is 3 3 rounds of 5 minutes or 5 of 5 minutes if it's a main event so once again that's short so if there is one particular person you want to watch or just a few fights you've only got to tune in for an hour 2 hours and you get all of that media and attention coming to an end in in one go. Yeah, and what we see is a lot of uh, consumption um, by millennials and Gen Z are, are mobile. So you're you know you're watching on a small screen for ten or fifteen minutes at a time. Like, what does that content need to be, and what does that competition need to be? So we're ideating now around ideas that like the entire competition could be done in fifteen minutes. Like, what does that look like? And 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 how do you bring that to, to, you know to people in unique ways? So I think again, I look at the industry, esports as um, you know I 
I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that it that the industry has been basically playing out of one playbook, and it's a good playbook. Don't get me wrong. We do plenty out of that playbook as well. But mm. there is a bigger opportunity, and it's tough because you can't abandon the core community for your games, and you have to satiate their needs and their desires. That's first and foremost. Sure, but yeah. can you expand that and bring in a new audience? And you know, you use the example UFC. The one I always use is the Olympics. Every four years, somehow they get tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people mm. to watch rhythmic dancing uh, or gymnastics, to watch uh, curling, to watch all these sports that nobody really cares about. And yeah. the way they do that is they lean into national pride and they lean into the teams and the players themselves and they create a story. And somebody told this to me really early on, which is sports is about stories. And I believe that esports is the same thing. So when I get down to why should I watch esport versus a sport, the question is who's got the more interesting story, not do I want to watch video games or do I want to watch, you know, a bunch of uh, people throw a round object into a cylinder. I mean, it's just as absurd that somehow that is legitimate, but, you know, playing Apex Legends is somehow not as legitimate. They're both honestly equally absurd or equally not absurd. What it's really about is people who are controlling what's going on that's the interesting part mm, it's such a good point you said about the olympics i was thinking about this the other day i don't know why but javelin just came into my mind out of nowhere and then i was thinking you know people go nuts for that they fill out stadiums but besides the olympics when do they ever care unless you're usain bolt unless you're michael phelps you know how many famous people are actually developed from the olympics that and, and, know, and they're not and that's that's i mean normally they're not that they are somewhat transitory but obviously hugely valuable entertainment property that has been built over, you know, a long, long period of time. So mm. I think there's lessons to be learned. I, you know, I think that esports was built out of what I'll call super fans of, of specific games. People, yeah. I mean, look, I did it too growing up. I mean, you were talking about your history. Hey, I used to have my friends over and we used to play and compete against each other. It's just taking that to a larger scale. That's where it started. Yeah. Where it's going now, and you know, you just saw the the announcement um, a couple of days ago of the deputy commissioner from the MLB coming out to Overwatch. I mean, that's a sign. Whether you agree with that decision or not, it's a sign that this is no longer a um, marketing only type of endeavor. It no longer is a um, you know, uh, small sort of fan-based, you know, sort of gamer-oriented. This is now a statement, um, you know, that people are really trying to make a sustainable business here. And, you know, we are, obviously, to make a sustainable business, you have to make something that brings joy to people to watch and to engage in. So yeah, those two things are not counter to each other. In fact, making a great esport that people love to want to watch and a game that people want to play. That's the way you get a good business, but it's just, it's a realization that I think the industry is just maturing. Mm. And one, one of the other questions that I always like to ask as well is who, like, like why, who are the people watching for? So an example is like, I went to the blizzard um, 
Overwatch World Cup Sydney. And it was like Team Australia, Team Finland. There are a few other countries there too. And, you know, it was a sold out. Um, it was sold out in Sydney. It was around 2,000 tickets. Every morning, you know, the, the line for the Blizzard store had to be cut off and it would be sold out before the end of the line would get there. Um, so people were going mad over that. And and while the crowd was having a fantastic time and it was, it was a sold out arena, everyone was enjoying the games and Australia was playing very well. I think we won that tournament. What I noticed was that the players, the, the Australian players who were literally just getting, you know, fanboyed over on stage, 30 minutes later could walk through the crowd and be completely unnoticed. And to me, that showed that they only cared about the fact that they are from Australia, so they have that national pride, and they're playing the game that they enjoy better than them. But they don't really care about the players whatsoever. And I thought that was an interesting, you know, chance for Blizzard to look at that and maybe say, maybe we should develop these players a little bit more. Yeah, I think maybe a, a good way to think of this is that there is no one single answer as to why people watch because people watch for different reasons. So mm. uh, now in the current marketplace, the the predominant viewer is a player of the specific game they're watching. So mm. what they're most interested in, I think, is watching the game that they love played at a really high level and trying, I think, in a way to get better at the game themselves. I think it... Uh, that's probably the starting point. I think it evolves to, and I'm, you know, so the way I would describe that is more of an intellectual, a head-oriented decision. A more uh, emotional decision, a heart-oriented mm -hmm. decision is, wow, I'm, I actually like this team, or I like these players, or I'm rooting for a country, sort of these other uh, sort of what I call heart-led sort of reasons. Um, and so, but there's also people that are coming in and especially, you know, what we've seen over this last six months, you know, is certain channels, especially as we move off of digital. So EA has been very successful at breaking through in television, linear distribution, which is where you can reach a lot of people very, very quickly. Um, but it's a very different type of audience. So now they're looking for, they don't even play the game. They may not even play video games, but they're coming into it kind of like some of the examples you and I were given before, which is they're interested in the competition. They're interested in the people. So um, I think, again, it's evolving, and I'm, I'm not – I don't want to be misunderstood here. There's different competitions for different audiences, um, and we would never think that there should be one-size-fits-all. So when you look at, let's say, our portfolio of you know the five titles – um, you know, we have actually said, look, we need to think of things in kind of tiers. Um, one of the tiers is authentic esports competition played out of the typical traditional sports sort of playbook. Mm -hmm. Then we want to look at, okay, what does it look like when we bring in people who maybe are famous for things other than playing video games and map them with professional players and we do a competition? And then what does it look like? at an even a higher level where it's not really so much about um, the authentic esports type of classic play, but it's more of a for fun competition, which maybe is very heavily driven by these celebrity or well-known folks. Because again, you know, each of those tiers is sort of targeted at a different person. And if you're gonna go mainstream, you kind of need to have all of that in your portfolio. So what you'll see, I think from EA over the next uh, well, actually, starting this fall, you'll you'll start to see that we're going to be doing more 
variety of competitions and not be satisfied with just a single way of doing competitions. Because I think it's a broad market out there and there's a lot of different ways to, to sort of build content for various audiences. Mm. And yet, yeah, I've been working with a few different, um, consulting with a few different parties talking about so many of the things that you've just discussed, which is great. <laughs> I'm glad we're so much on the same page there about those different models. And I, you know, I hate to use, I guess, the UFC too much or, or again and again as an example, but I just think that they are something that, that esports needs to look at more and more with, you know, and a lot of what you were saying is, you know, why are people watching? And for, and part of my question is, you know, why are people watching? Are they watching for the game? Are they watching for the story? Are they watching for the people who are playing? Are they watching for the teams? As in, you know, are they watching because it's Cloud9? Are they watching because it's Sneaky that plays in the League of Legends team? Or are they watching because it's League of Legends? Or are they watching for another reason? And, 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 I, my, and my answer to you is, is that it's different for different people. Um, I think all of those are, are actual factors. But which ones are the dominant ones, I think, are different for different people. So, yeah. you know, if I put on a broadcast on ESPN, I'm going to get a definitely a more uh, uh, slant towards the people that are coming in for the players and the competition and the people. If I put it on Twitch, you know, and I do a eight hour broadcast, I can tell you it's going to be primarily a player, you know, a, a player audience that is looking to you know, that, that loves the game and is trying to learn how to, 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 to play the games. We, we have a mantra around uh, our broadcast team, which is uh, deliver three things in, in every broadcast. Um, and it's sort of designed around thinking about the various audiences. Uh, first, teach the game because people are coming to learn how to play the game and get better. Second, mm -hmm. is reveal personalities. That can be player personalities. That can be broadcaster personalities. You know, the things that really make people lean forward are entertaining people. And the third one is surprise the audience because we have a glut of content in the world right now. <laughs> and if you're not going to do something that people haven't seen before, um, I think people get bored pretty quickly. So can we achieve all those three things every time we put on an event or, or a broadcast? No, we probably don't, but I, I can tell you at least that's that's kind of our, our mantra. I even made a sign up that I put up in the broadcast studio uh, just to remind our teams, like, you know, come back to one of those three things and try to drive that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think, you know, just like you were saying, to back that up, a lot of the real money and real growth comes out from telling that story and bringing in a more casual audience. And once again, the example I was, I was going to use with the USC is there's two major points in their growth period. Number one is their reality TV show, The Ultimate Fighter, which was able to tell the stories. So it wasn't, it was no longer, you had to be a hardcore fan of kickboxing or Muay Thai or wrestling to be a fan of it. You could tell the story and you could follow those people and follow their journey. And a lot of those people from the ultimate fighter did become champions like Robert Whitaker, you know, Australian MMA middleweights and, you know, Josh Koscheck and various others in there. And the second one was having someone who's almost bigger than the sport, which is Conor McGregor. Yeah. who's able to bring in all of those casual fans now. So you're able to have people watching it just because he's a larger-than-life phenomenon. Or, and, you know, or, I feel like... Or was it, uh, I'm trying to remember her name, uh, uh, Ronda Rousey? Is that her Ronda name? Rousey, yep. Yeah, I mean, that was another big... I, um, I worked and was charge of EA Sports marketing when we did our first deal with the UFC. So I've, 
yeah. deep in the UFC. I, I brought to market at least two versions of that. Um, and I've met many, many times sat down at the table with Dana White. And I get, I get that. In fact, we are, uh, I mean, I shamelessly look and steal from entertainment around us all the time. So we do look at the UFC. We look mm. at the NBA really progressive. We look at the NFL. We look at all the, you know, uh, the European leagues. But we also look at other forms of entertainment. I mean, I'm a gigantic reality competition nut. So I watch, you know, whether it's uh, The Voice or whether it's Survivor or whether it's literally The British Bake Off. I've watched all of those shows and many yeah. more. And there's so many things to be learned about why do people watch? And we're still clearly learning. But as an industry, again, um, we have to stay true to the communities that are currently watching and we have to stay true to what they want, but we also can open it up and you just have to be careful about how you broaden out. Um, and you can't at any point sort of lose the passionate fans, the core fans who are watching for, you know, what I'll call is the traditional esports experience. Um, so we don't want to just sort of like change overnight. We want to evolve and we want to see where we can go. But um, mm. my goal is to, you know, bring more entertainment uh, to what we're doing. And, you know, think, you know, our teams are very much thinking of how do we build a business that is sustainable unto itself? It's not relying on the marketing value that we bring to the company. Um, you know, I would say that at this point, there's nobody in the industry that has been able to build a profitable model based upon non-game related revenue sources. Um, but people are getting close. And um, and I think hopefully, you know, all of us will, will get there and we'll, we'll really have created a new form of entertainment that, you know, maybe 10 years from now, people look around and go, yeah, that's that's just what everybody watches, and it it it, it does become the mainstream sort of thing. Um, so I think that's where it can go, and obviously, that's kind of why I'm doing it because I think it can go, and I want to be part of that journey. Mm. It's it it's I guess so much what we're talking about really is functioning as a media business, right? There was there was a cool quote I saw. I can't remember where it was, but it was something like you know within ten years every company will function as a media company. And even for us here at Big Esports, you know, we do a lot of actually I released a video just before our just before our call about um about that exact MLB and, and Overwatch Commissioner thing. And you know, it's a massive line of of incoming business revenue for us as people watching our content, engaging with it, saying, Okay, I think Chris knows what he's talking about. Let's have a chat. Um, you know, you look at things like the UFC, for example, and their broadcast rights, you look at the NFL and their serious amount of broadcast rights, where they could not only just sell their main products but they can sell a Tuesday show about their product on one channel and a Thursday show about their product in another, both for, you know, billion dollar plus, you know, billion with a B. So, you know, looking at that media and then also looking at FaZe Clan, for example, you know, they, they yes, they are an esports team, but essentially they function as a media company and hell, they're releasing a full feature length film <laughs> coming out soon too. So I, I mean, think that's, you know. To me, it's, it's maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I've always thought, you know, first of all, understand who your viewer is or who your viewer could be. Understand why they want to watch. Mm -hmm. Give them something that meets and exceeds their expectations around that. 
that will get you a large viewership audience. And when you get a large viewership audience throughout centuries of humankind, people have been able to figure out a way to monetize that, right? So it, it's, mm. you know, the key is really, it's no different than building a game. You know, we used to spend a lot of time, obviously, what do gamers want to play? What are the features? What are those, how do they want to interact? The better you understand that and the better you're able to deliver on that, that's how a product becomes a battlefield where it's, you know, one of these mega titles that everybody, you know, a lot of people, at least in the world, seem to want to play. Um, mm. That's what we're trying to do as well. But I think that because it was birthed, you know, esports was birthed in the way that it was out of that marketing organization. and for the most part, you know, even like I said, Dota 2 is, is a marketing vehicle. Um, you know, there's only a few players that it sort of have this vision. Um, and um, and it takes a while to, to build that. I mean, if you want to go back and look at the length that it takes to have a new form of sports entertainment become meaningful and powerful, I mean, it's measured in decades typically. You know, if you want to think about the NBA or the NFL or, you know, European football, um, UFC, these are all, you know, these are not overnight uh, types of things. These take a while to get ingrained into the culture, to build over time and to evolve into something that hopefully, you know, can can satisfy the, the, the entertainment needs of, of many, many millions. Mm. So I'd, love, I'd love to get some of your thoughts on, I guess, internal versus external management. So like a really obvious example is that, you know, Valve, besides the international, do basically nothing internal as far as CSGO and Dota 2 goes. Sure that they might back-end fund some tournaments, but ultimately it's 99% external compared to, say, Riot Games, which has a very similar game, League of Legends, which is 100% the opposite. They're contracting everything from the tournaments to the commentators are often on full-time salaries. So I'd love to get your view on that. Like a lot of EA stuff seems to be going to quite internal. Do you, do you see where that's, do you see that that's the future for you? Actually, I would tell you that actually uh, we're not more internal. We're actually fairly balanced. Um, the, the answer that I would give you is it goes back to why are you doing esports? So mm -hmm. if you are uh, Dota 2 and your goal is to um, have this build as a marketing tool to come in to your game, well, if you already own the game, that's your revenue source. Why would you go ahead and spend the money when other people are willing to go do that for you. So I think there's a, you know, a motivation there where they don't really necessarily want to take on the investment that it takes. I mean, hiring a bunch of people, building studios, doing everything that you need to do is, is a big endeavor. And some companies mm. want to take that on and others don't. I think the ones that are willing to take it on are the ones that are saying, you know, we're going to be in this for decades. Right, this is not a short-term thing, right? You're you're building for the long term. When you build for the long term, then it you can take an investment like a studio or like broadcast or talent, and you can you know amortize that over a longer period of time. So I think it just depends on are you doing this as a marketing investment to drive in-game revenue primarily, or are you primarily trying to also build out a standalone business um, and I think that can explain a lot of the differences for EA you know I've 
I look at it again as headwinds and tailwinds. So I would like as many people <laughs> uh, blowing into my sail of my sailboat as I possibly can. And um, if you look at, let's say, the popularity of the NBA, did the NBA and the NBA franchises, are they the only ones that have been pushing basketball? No. Nike and all the companies that make all the gear, they push on it. The broadcasters, they push on it. The sponsors, they push on it. Everybody is investing to try to, to move forward. So I've never you know, ever felt that any one single company could ever make the investment that it would take for something to really get to that scale. You're going to need multiple partners who, again, have a shared strategic vision, the wherewithal, because it does take time, to make an investment over a long period of time to grow something. And so um, I look at that and say, yeah, I want more uh, third parties that want to choose to invest. And what is up to us when we license out you know, the rights to allow people to do it, you know, we have to construct it in a way that those companies can make money or else once they've gone through their venture capital money, they'll, they'll have, you know, they'll be out of business. So, you know, we have to build something for the long term. And again, that's something that maybe my background at EA, you know, EA, I think at this point, if it's not the oldest company in the industry, it's one of them. I think it was founded in 1982. Um, and EA Sports, which I had, you know, the honor of, of uh, managing that brand for many, many years. You know, I always used to think in timelines of decades, you know, make decisions about what's happening a decade in the same way that you're recounting an experience mm -hmm. that you had with EA Sports from 2000, I think you said. So we're now... Yeah, two decades away you know if you make a lot of decisions that are based on what do i just need next quarter i don't think you end up with that same type of relationship so i've always felt long term and long term we want to make it so we can get other people to invest their money we can give them an opportunity to make a return and their partnership with us um, if we're aligned strategically will help us grow um, to the benefit of the competitors and the benefit of the community and the benefit of people that are viewing. Mm. Mm. That's some good, some good answers. I'd like, I'd like to, I'd like to talk as well about um, crowdfunding in esports. You know, it's, it's something that, you know, it's, it's something that brings a lot of media attention, especially through the Dota 2 International. So, so for those people listening that don't know, you know, Dota 2 um, is, a, is a MOBA game and every year they've got a large tournament called the International. The, the publisher slash developer Valve will put up a certain amount of prize pool themselves, which is around a million, a million six, and then the rest will be crowdfunded by the community. And that crowdfunding happens by purchasing in-game items um, through a compendium and extra points and et cetera for cosmetics. And 25% of all money spent on those cosmetics will go directly to the prize pool and 75% will, will sit with Valve. So for last year, it was around a $35 million prize pool. For this year, because international has been delayed, but still they've hit, they've hit over that amount already. I'd love to learn a bit more, more about, you know, EA's thinking around crowdfunding and such. It seems like a fantastic way to get some significant buy-in that, that once again, it's not just about the player supporting the eSport, but they're also getting some in-game stuff to play casually too. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting model and one that we've certainly looked at. We haven't yet executed on that, 
but that doesn't mean that we won't in the future. Uh, to me, it's just a it's another interesting, unique way to connect your community, you know, into uh, the gaming experience and the game itself. Um, mm. And so we've done some similar, not exactly what you're talking about, but just other ways of connecting the community. So, for instance, you know, our esports players, um, uh, some of the top professionals, we put them as playable coaches in in on the sidelines of Madden and made those available. Uh, you know, to to uh, the regular player base as part of our uh, Madden Ultimate team. Um, you know, we've inserted you know uh, the 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 teams that that play uh, in our FIFA ecosystem. You know, those organizations into their game, elevating sort of those brands and and kind of going full circle with the community um, for their love of those teams and 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 getting to experience that inside of the game itself. So. Um, you know, as for crowdfunding, um, I think it's been great. And, and, um, it has, you know, to me, I would just call it another tailwind. That's, uh, in that way, it's actually the community that's, that's helping you because there's absolutely no doubt that more prize money, um, brings in more attention. It brings players into your ecosystem that want to go for that. It brings media attention. It certainly has a marketing value to it. Um, all those reasons um, make it a really effective, uh, you know, partnership with, in this case, with the community. Mm. So, going back to, I guess, like one of the one of the first questions we talked about as well is like, how how are you determining internally what games to focus on as as an esport? You, know, you mentioned your five, but I don't think you mentioned, you know, uh, UFC, which we talked about a bit. There's a new title coming out, and also Battlefield has been out for a while as well like is there a particular reason you don't focus on those and focus on others um i, I think again a, a couple different things one is is um you know for, well, i'll just take a step back and just say we're already invested in five franchises i'm not aware of any other publisher that has anywhere really close to that in terms of major investments so if anything i'd rather go deeper on those then probably necessarily add more why certain franchises um versus others again i go back to the original question is it a game that can be built for competition is there a development team that is willing to make the commitment and their resources to build what's needed um is there a large community that you know will embrace this um is there interest in you know in the product to the broader audience you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about is our focus at EA on building esports around accessible games. So if you have this vision of getting to a mass market entertainment, you want to have a game that's accessible. And um, accessibility comes from both the game itself, but also, you know, for instance, the connection to real world. Right now, you know, if you are Call of Duty, um, you know, there is no real world equivalency of that. If you're uh, League of Legends, there's no real world equivalency of that, which means it requires a lot on the viewer to understand, to make sense of it. Um, you think about a game like The Sims or FIFA or Madden or FIFA Online 4 and even Apex, which is more core, but I'd say on the spectrum of most shooters, it's probably more understandable. Um, not having to get over that understandable barrier 
being more accessible is a is really important to us because again you know i've been in the industry like i said 25 plus years you know i don't play dota 2 i don't play league of legends i can't really follow those competitions but you know mm. you've got uh i think somewhere close to four billion people around the world that call themselves uh, uh, a football slash soccer fan um they already understand the rules they already understand mm. the players they already understand the teams that's that's a lot of stuff you don't have to explain to people so anyway going back is you know we look at those things we look at the available market size four billion people who follow football is pretty impressive number that's why that was my first choice <laughs> plus it also ticked off all the other reasons um but then you just have to have the long-term commitment you know apex was probably the most you know risky in that you know we started working with that team before that game even launched not even knowing if there would be an audience for that game now as it turned out there's a huge audience for that game and we thought yeah. that there would be but there was no assurances that there would be um and so um you know that's part of it as well as just like i said you better be committed for a long period of time you know you talked about some of the games that are most popular they've been around for a long period of time so you have to have a a publisher and you have to have other people in the ecosystem wanting to keep on pushing that forward mm. and you know we hear that a lot some you know people say well one of the reasons why i'm interested in let's say making an investment in fifa esports well i can guarantee fifa is going to be at the top of the charts every year and that it's going to be uh understood and uh by football fans billions of football fans every year because you guys have been doing it for i think we're now past 30 years of fifa and that that's a business reason it takes away a lot of risk for um people to get involved whether mm. that's sponsors or media partners or whoever it is mm. Pretty an in-depth answer again, which is good. I'm I'm glad you take I'm glad you take the time to walk through. I can see your I can see your thinking methodology as you answer those questions. I can almost yeah, see I mean, the dot points that have been checked off. I mean, look, if you you know you wanted to enter into an esport, would you you know what what is more risky for you? Uh, a new game that is uncertain what its future is, um, or a, a game that's been around for thirty years? Yeah, you know, and that's not the only factor. There's other factors clearly, but I'm just saying that is one that I hear a lot on is, um, you know, again, this is the difference between just playing, you know, creating an esport just to have fun as a viewer versus a business, which is why do people invest their time and their energy and what does it actually take to get a viable business? Because if these things aren't viable, then they go away. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of examples of, you know, leagues, sports leagues that have come and gone uh, because they couldn't get and make a viable business. And, you know, I'm we're very focused on making sure that we can create a viable business. Mm. So we haven't got you for much longer, but the, I guess the last question I really want to ask is how do you make the Sims an eSport? So this is a really uh, a great story, I think, is that 
um, you know, talk about a, a, a product that uh, products that sometimes don't work. Um, I had hired a, a team to go do esports for Command and Conquer, which was a mobile game. Um, you know, when I set out, I said I, I want to do um, sort of four four main focuses or three main focuses. Sorry, um, I want to invest in sports because it's at the heart of who EA is. It's also the heart of what my passion is and my history of the company. I wanted to make an investment in something that was a unlicensed property um, that um, was a, a game that would have a wide base that became Apex. And I wanted to make an investment in mobile because I felt like um, if you think about the lot, the size of audiences, that's, that's the biggest audience size. Um, so we invested in Command and Conquer and uh, built a program, actually did one event, and uh, the game just didn't build an audience. And at a certain point, you kind of realize, um, like I said, you need to have a viable game uh, to build on, and we just didn't have it. So yeah. we took that team and we said, why don't you look at the rest of the portfolio of EA? And don't self-censor yourself um, and think out of the box. And the team talked to a lot of groups and uh, they came to me and said, kind of some of the narrative I've been talking about with you today. Why is it that every competition is always two teams fighting against each other, you know, in a traditional sports sort of way? Mm. Um, and they said, we're inspired by reality competitions. And um, the, as soon as they said it, I said, wow, that's like breaking out of the box. And then when we said, well, who's the primary audience of The Sims? Oh, it's like 50-50 male, female. Wow. The whole industry has been, you know, been told it's male-dominated type of industry. Oh, we could break that barrier as well. Oh. Um, we're trying to break into an accessible game. What's more accessible than the game of life? Everybody is alive. They understand what it's like to live life. Um, so it's pretty darn, I mean, that's by far the most accessible game uh, that that I think has maybe ever been created. And um, we said, look, we, we've got an idea here. And I can tell you that every time we presented it internally, for the first time, there was always like a, huh? And by the end of the presentation, people said, oh, I think I get it. And, you know, I was really happy, you know, uh, this first go around, uh, you know, it was on TBS. The first three episodes, you know, averaged about 750,000 viewers a piece. Um, that's, a, that's a good number for, for television. It's a really good number. Um, and the audience skewed heavily towards female, um, which was what we were trying to do. And, you know, I know the esports, traditional esports industry would say, well, who cares? Because that's kind of what the gaming industry says about The Sims. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, The Sims is hugely popular. It's a good business. There's 40 million people playing it. So, you know, that's an example of, rather than just 
fish in a pond that everybody else is fishing in and trying to grab a little slice of something that everybody's trying to go for, maybe just move over to a different pond and have it all to yourself. And so um, whether that's a TV audience that most people have ignored, whether that's a, um, a female audience that people have ignored, um, there is more to the potential of esports than shooter games, strategy games, hardcore games, long broadcast times, male-dominated viewership. I'm not saying that any of those things are negative because they're not. We're doing plenty of those things. I'm just saying that's not the only thing that you can do. So with The Sims, I think we showed that we can do something and there is an audience, a quite large audience for it. I can tell you that all of our broadcast partners are eager for us to do more. Our biggest challenge right now is how do you produce that type of content in a COVID world? Um, but we're working on it. So uh, you may see some even more innovative things that you haven't seen in this industry yet, um, really as a result of trying to figure out how you can do things uh, in, a, in an isolated you know, uh, world that we're now all living in. Mm. I think it's an interesting concept. It's something I've been talking to some other people about and doing a lot of research into that too. So hopefully we, we see some more, whether that's from the people I'm working with or, or someone else in that in that similar vein. And I think, you know, I think there's a fantastic spot for even more, you could say even more competitive versions of that in more traditional esports where it's less, you know, I think the audience would be interested if it's not too game showy. Because I think we've seen different um reality shows before where a player is asked to play a MOBA and an RTS and an FPS to decide who the ultimate gamer is or something like that. And it's not, you know, a lot of the time those shows don't perform that well because it's just not realistic. And it seems more like this is what an executive thinks that a gamer wants. But gamers are often, you know, playing one game and they want to get invested in something becoming better. And I guess using that UFC example, you know, they did a reality show, but that was all about one sport, which is MMA, becoming better and becoming a champion at the end of it. And I think there's some, I think there's a, a wide scope here for that general reality concept as a whole. Again, I, I not every idea is going to work and not every idea is executed well. Um, you know, I learned long ago that if you get out of touch with, your community, that's a really bad place to be. So um, the good news is, is that, you know, the people that are driving this business, um, one, I think almost all of us are pretty uh, big gamers ourselves. Um, you know, that's where you get the best work is when you get people that are really passionate about the games that they're working on. Yeah. Um, but beyond it, it's just, it's also having uh, the ability to say, we better listen. Um, and um, you know, I tell, you know, you've heard this before, but, you know, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason, which is, you know, you should listen more than what you say. So we tend to try to listen, um, you know, pretty frequently and we try things and then we see how it goes. So, um, will there be some things that fall flat? Yeah, I'm sure if, if we're not innovating, then, uh, you know, if everything was successful in, in some sort of traditional way then it probably means we're not pushing the envelope. We need to push into new ways. So th that's a big focus for us to, to, to go do um, and, uh, and make sure though that, you know, we're not leaving anybody behind in our, in our 
in in our attempt to to make this even into a bigger thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So if if someone wants to follow you or, or any of the work that you're doing online, where can where can they do so? Uh, where can I do so? Uh, you can follow me obviously on on social media, um, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Although I'm not a huge social media guy, um, but uh, uh, you know, I I get around in the normal sense. I do a lot of interviews. Um, we put out a lot of content out of EA, and so um, you can certainly keep up to date on what we're doing, and and hopefully. Uh, Hopefully the people that are here and others that are going to be watching will enjoy some of the content that we're putting out. Yeah, fantastic, man. I really, I really enjoyed this conversation today. It's good to see that, um, you know, you, you're taking that well thought out look at it and, you know, thinking about things differently than most, you know, not necessarily focusing on that traditional sports, esports tournament concept and thinking, you know, how can you innovate to become bigger for the future? Because it's obvious that, you know, esports is growing, it's exciting, it's entertaining, but, you know, once again, if you just look at the vanity metrics of the raw numbers, it's a $1.1 billion industry. So it's hard to focus on that, you know, if you, if you want to make some serious money and, and get some growth. So we need these kind of different ways of thinking, I guess. Yeah, and, and, and again, and I agree with you, um, but again, a lot of the concepts that I'm talking about can be applied to traditional esports, right? I mean, we can make yeah, us sure. much more entertaining, you know, uh, for those that watch, um, trying to remember what it's called, NBA. It's the halftime show on TNT here in America for NBA. I think it's called Game Time. Um, you know, it's, mm. it's you know, Shaquille O'Neal, Kenny Smith, Charles Barkley, um, you know, um, engaging in very traditional sports in a very traditional sports sort of way, but with a lot of entertainment value to it. And I think, you know, that's a high watermark for me. Um, I'll watch that show um, even if I'm not even that interested in the game. Um, but it's the game that they're talking about is absolutely would be the equivalent of your traditional esports type of execution. So when we do our traditional esports, and don't get me wrong, we're doing a lot of it. It's still the majority of what we are doing. Um, we're going to try to bring more of that entertainment value into it. Um, again, I think whether you are a core gamer or whether you're not, um, I think that is going to appeal to you if you get it right. Mm, yeah, and I, and I think if anyone else is listening to this and wondering, you know, are there any esports organizations or tournaments that are doing a lot of focus on media, I'd suggest if anyone wants to do extra research, looking up Blast, Blast Pro Series, as well as doing a lot of, you know, various challenges with Counter-Strike players. And they had, um, I think they had FIFA players versus Counter-Strike players in various challenges and things like that too. They've got a very extensive library of different types of videos. So try to humanize the players a bit more, tell those stories and get that buy-in from the fans, which is extremely important going forward. If you're you're going to need to do something, if you're going to get me to watch uh, curling. So... Uh, <laughs> Um, but you do it as NBC does it here in America every four years and gets me to do it. So, uh, yeah, it seems to work again. There, there's so many, um, esports is unique unto itself. Um, it, it has a different history. It has a, a, a different sort of growth, but, um, we should never be so obstinate to say, Oh, what has worked in traditional sports? What has worked in traditional broadcast? Uh, there you know, uh, there's so many lessons to be learned from other businesses. And that's why, you know, I've hired, you know, 
my head of commercials from um, the PGA Tour, long-term veteran of that. Mm. It doesn't bother me that golf is a different demographic. It's just what does it take to get to that larger audience? And, you know, that's the thinking behind mm. um, Activision Blizzard and bringing, uh, you know, Tony over from, uh, from the MLB. It's not because of baseball. It's because of media and broadcast and content creation and sponsors and how do you grow all of that at a truly large scale and um that's really what it's about so um that blend of borrowing from other parts of industries in the world um as well as taking what is unique to esports and melding that together um to me that's kind of the recipe that at least we're trying to do yeah fantastic well i've had you i've had you for a lot of time now i know you're a busy man but thanks thanks again for coming on it was it was a really good chat and, and i want to thank the person that said that my beard is impressive so <laughs> that's clinton spark yep <laughs> always this, the man for the conference yeah th this is my covid uh quarantine beard um and we'll see if it still is there after we're all released from this but uh yeah <laughs> we're uh we're all we're all making do Anyway, thank you, thank Chris. You. Thanks for everybody for listening in. Really appreciate the time. No worries at all. Thanks, Todd. And thanks to everyone who's listening in, whether you're live on LinkedIn, watching the replay on YouTube or listening to the audio-only version of the podcast. We've got more episodes like this coming out every week and we've got a lot more content functioning through our Twitter uh, at BigEsports underscore GG, Facebook, as well as my LinkedIn profile, which is forward slash Smithy Mayo. So make sure you check it out and let us know what you'd like to learn about and what you'd like to hear. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now.